morning, Hope Vale. We're glad you joined us today. Let's go ahead and stand together. We want to begin giving God the praise that he deserves. We want to join together in one voice and multiply our hallelujahs. Let's praise him with all that we have this morning. You love him. Like radiant diamonds bursting inside, cannot contain your love will surely come find us like blazing wildfires, singing your name, God of mercy, God of to begin just giving God our praise and multiplying our hallelujahs together as we praise his name. Again, welcome to Hopevale. We are glad that you have joined us here on this day where we celebrate all that God has done, what he is doing, and what he is yet to do. Uh, Before we keep going, we just want to welcome one another in this place. So grab the hands of a few people around you and welcome them today. 
You can go ahead and have a seat. We want to continue in worship today, giving praise to God uh, from whom all blessings flow. And uh, as we continue in worship, we want to participate in our offering. We're going to have our ushers come forward and uh, worship through uh, the act of giving this morning. I'll pray for us as we enter into this time. God, we thank you for all that you have done, all that you have provided, the way that you give us our daily bread, sometimes in ways we don't even understand. Uh, But we thank you so much for being good, for being um, mighty, for being merciful. You are a great God, and we give you all the praise. And God, we, uh, we thank you for this time where we're able to worship through our giving and pray that you would use these gifts. You would use them to grow your kingdom, God. You would use them to um, build your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see um, your name and your name alone lifted high, lifted high above all others. And we praise you. Um, We give you glory, and no matter what is going on in our lives, we can say um, with assurance that it is well with our soul. We love you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.
powerful song. Uh, and as we enter into a time of communion this morning, I just want to take a moment to reflect on a couple of the lines of that song. You know, because let's face it, the only reason that we can sing, it is well with my soul, is because of Jesus. You know, without Jesus, you know, the truth is, is that it's not so well with our souls. Without Jesus, we're dead in our sin. Without Jesus, we're left to our own devices. Without Jesus, we're broken and incomplete. Without Jesus, our souls are longing for things that are lacking without him. But the truth is, and the thing that we get to hold on to, is that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins so that our souls could be reconciled to God. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, we experience that forgiveness of our sins. And so then with Jesus, we live in the power of Christ, With Jesus, we are made whole. With Jesus, we are promised eternal life with him forever. We no longer bear the sin because Christ took it upon himself when he was crucified on the cross in our place. And I love the way the Apostle Paul talks about this and paints this picture of this truth in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 17. And he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So if you've accepted the trustworthiness of that saying, that is exactly why we can sing, it is well with my soul. The other words of that verse uh, in the song captures that in such a perfect way. You know, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole of it, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And so today, as we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us, here at Hopevale, you don't have to be a member of this church to participate in communion. All that we ask is that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, the way that the Bible describes it, that you've accepted the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you, dying for your sin in your place. And so this morning, if Jesus is not your Savior, we would just ask that you would simply let the elements pass by. We ask that you would do that just out of respect for the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. And any parents with children in the room, we would just ask that you would use your discretion Uh, with them, whether they participate or not. And we just trust that you know your kid's heart on that. And so having said all of that, you know, in no means by setting the the, the kind of do's and don'ts of this, do we intend this time to be exclusive? You know, the truth is, because Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross, he did that for everyone. Because he knew that we cannot cover our sins. We can't find forgiveness of our sins on our own, in our own good works. The only thing that could satisfy the, the, the justice of God was that perfect sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And so when he did that, he did it so that everybody would have an opportunity to respond to that, to accept him as their Savior. And so if what we've talked about this morning doesn't describe you, I would just encourage you to take a moment this morning and just ask yourself the question, what's holding me back from that? You know, maybe in this life, if you, again, as we think about that song, you think, I'm not sure if I can really sing 
it is well with my soul. And so to just turn your eyes to the cross, turn your eyes to Jesus and consider if what Jesus has offered you is something that could fill that void. And I promise you, if you speak to anybody who has given their lives to the Lord, they can attest to the goodness uh, that Christ is in their own lives and the ability to sing, it is well with our soul. So as you ponder that question, I'd like to invite the servers to come forward as we prepare to take the bread. And as they come forward, I'm just going to uh, pray uh, for our time together and just bless uh, what we're about to do. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we have this morning to reflect on the ultimate perfect sacrifice that you made on the cross for us. God, you gave your life. You were crucified and killed on that cross in a very, uh, very real and physical way. And you did it because you love us. And God, we thank you for that sacrifice that you've made. And so just as we talked about this morning, Lord, if there's anybody in this room who has not taken that time to consider you as their Savior, uh, the one and only God who can uh, enter into their lives and make them whole to bring eternal life uh, to their souls. God, just pray for this moment uh, that as they reflect on that, God, that your spirit would just speak to them in ways uh, that maybe they've never experienced before, that they would recognize you uh, as their personal Savior because of what you have done on the cross for them. And so, God, as believers, we do reflect and just thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Uh, We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. So the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we are so grateful to you for the sacrifice that you made on the cross and all that it means for us. God, you are so good to us. And as we prepare to take the cup, God, we just we reflect on the fact that you shed your blood for us in a, a real physical sense, God, and also in a spiritual sense, just that your blood covers over us. It washes all of our sins away because that is what was required. Thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your blood and just the way that that gives us free access to our Heavenly Father, just restoring our souls to our Creator. Thank you, Jesus.
In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, thank you so much for this time that we've had this morning to reflect on the death of your Son on the cross for us. God, may we never take that for granted. So thank you for these times that we get to do this in remembrance together of your sacrifice for us. And God, may we take uh, the trustworthiness of Paul's statement about you and just live our lives for your glory and the freedom that we have in Christ to do your will. So, Lord, as we turn our attention this morning to the message, just prepare our hearts. God, we open them to you and just ask that you would speak to us in whatever way uh, you see fit. God, we give ourselves to you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Adam. I love just taking the songs we've sung and integrating that with the communion experience and God using that to assure us of what we know to be true, that we are forever belonging to God because of the work of Christ. Well, as we conclude our Money 101 series today, I want to begin by reading a passage from the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. This is a story of Jesus and his interaction with two very different kinds of people. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. Luke writes, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, Jesus, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet. He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. That's what came to his mind. Verse 40, Jesus answered him. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't a conversation, but Jesus knew what was going in this man's thoughts going on there. So Jesus answered him, Simon, so we know his name, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, a denarius was the usual day wage for a day laborer, so 500 days of wages versus 50 days of wages. That's one year, four and a half months, versus just under a couple months, which if we use U.S. average wages today would be something like $65,000 versus $6,500. The question is asked, Simon replies, verse 42, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Ding, 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 you have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. Normal hospitality move in that culture, by the way. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Acts of hospitality, respect, gratitude. And Jesus points out these three massive contrasts and how each of them acted toward him. And I'm sure there were other differences as well, but by this point we get the picture. Verse 47, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests begin to say among themselves, you know, murmur, murmur, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now these verses here are the end of the story, but verse 47 is really the punchline of the story, the point that Jesus is trying to get across. Let's look at it again. Verse 47, therefore I tell you her many sins 
have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So what's the point? Forgiven much, love much. Forgiven little, loves little, right? Forgiven much, loves much. Forgiven little, loves little. I mean, think back to the story. Who's going to be more grateful, more appreciative? The one who owed a year and a half of wages or the one who just owed a couple months of wages? The one with the bigger amount, right? And what I find here interesting in the story is the contrast between the two debts, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, right? But to me, it's not just about a number. It's also about a mindset. It's the difference between thinking, yeah, that's a fair amount of debt, but I think I can handle it, versus, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? There's no way I'm going to be able to pay this all off, right? It's the difference between discouragement and despair, the difference between feeling harassed by your debt versus feeling helpless because of your debt. That's why the responses are so different. Forgiven little loves little. Forgiven much loves much. But you know what? That's not even the end of the story. Because this passage isn't really so much about financial debt. It's about moral debt. It's about spiritual debt. It's about the offenses and word and deed and thought and motive that we have racked up against God. All of us, and for us to try to wipe the slate clean, you know, through our penance, our good works, our clean living, our church attendance, and all other forms of religiosity, there's no way we can do it. No way, not even the best of the best of us. Because the Bible says, spiritually speaking, we don't owe God just 50 denarii or even 500 denarii or 5,000 or 5 million. No, spiritually speaking, that number is more like our national debt, which right around now is you know, $19 trillion. That's more like our debt with God, a figure so astronomical we've given up hope thinking we could ever possibly pay him back and make things right. That, by the way, is why we celebrate communion. That's why the forgiveness that Jesus extends from the cross with no strings attached is why it's so amazing. He takes on this immeasurable moral debt that we all owed God, and through his perfect life, and through his sacrificial death, he paid it all off. All of it, not because he thought we had somehow done something to deserve it. No, it's solely an act of grace motivated by the great, great love that Jesus has for us. Do you get it? Forgiven much, loves much. Forgiven little, loves little. But you know what? That's not even the end of the story. It's not because the real point of Jesus' parable is more like this. The one who knows they've been forgiven much, loves much. But the one who just thinks they've been forgiven little, loves little. The one who knows they've been forgiven much, loves much. But the one who just thinks they've been forgiven little, loves little. Why is Simon such a jerk to Jesus? Because Simon doesn't think Jesus has much to offer him. That Simon, through all his religion, feels like he's doing pretty good with God on his own, right? But this woman, she knows she's a mess. She knows she needs help. And she no way pretends that she could bring anything to the table when it comes to her forgiveness. That's why she loved so much. And the same should be true with us. Because we have been forgiven much, that's why we as Christians should be the most thankful people on this planet. Forgiven people are grateful people. The one who knows they've been forgiven much loves much, but the one who just thinks they've been forgiven little loves little. Now, you might be wondering what all this has to do with our Money 101 series, let alone our topic today on giving. Well, in fact, it has quite a lot to do with what we're going to talk today, because when it comes to giving money, when it comes to, uh, you know, sharing money, our motivation, our attitude, it's everything. Everything. And when you hear me say the word attitude, hopefully by this point in the series, your mind goes to this diagram that we've seen every week about our money attitudes and our money actions. So let me say it again one more time. Where do our thoughts and feelings and choices and decisions and habits and patterns come when it has to do with money? Well, it's this, that our money attitudes direct our money actions, but then in turn our money actions shape and reinforce our money attitudes. Both of them matter, and they create this ongoing cycle of money momentum that can work for us or against us. It's true with spending. It's true with saving. It's true with borrowing, and as we're going to see today, it's also true with giving. 
Because I believe that the most generous people in this world aren't those with the most money. Rather, it's those who know and experience the amazing grace of God in their life. That's how they define themselves, and it changes the way they live. And so with all that as our foundation, let's go ahead and talk about giving to the Lord, about sharing with others in need. And if we approach today like we have the previous weeks, then we're going to start with the attitude. Let's start with our motivation when it comes to giving. Now, in some sense, we've already covered that, right, with this passage in Luke 7, that the best possible motivation for our good works, including our giving, is our love for God. It's being grateful for all that he's done for us. But you look elsewhere in the gospel, and you see that this pattern goes on and on. As a matter of fact, Jesus cares more about the heart behind our giving than he does about the amount of our giving, right? Jesus always cares more about the heart behind our giving than he does about the amount of our giving. You know, one of the classic stories that illustrates this is the account of the widow's offering in Mark 12. Mark chapter 12, where beginning in verse 41, we see Jesus. He's sitting in the temple. He's watching people give their offerings to God. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowds putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, and in doing so, they drew attention to themselves, right? Verse 42, but, here's the contrast, but, a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. It's a total role reversal for the disciples, right? These wealthy donors were held up as role models of spirituality for everyone to imitate, or even better, for everyone to be impressed with. But Jesus takes that thought and turns it upside down and says, no, you got it all wrong. That widow right there, she is your hero. Remember what the Lord told the prophet Samuel, that God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus always cares more about the heart behind our giving than he does about the amount of our giving. Heart, motive, attitude, it's everything. And Jesus isn't the only one to talk about this. The Apostle Paul also addresses our heart and when it comes to giving in some of his letters as well. I like this verse from 2 Corinthians 9 because he also points out the possibility of wrong and impure motives when it comes to giving. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, Paul writes, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So not reluctant giving, you know, that's I really don't want to, but I guess I will, right? Or not under compulsion giving, that's I really don't want to, but someone's making me or I feel pressured to, right? And Paul says, no, don't give to God out of that kind of motivation. Give out of this uh, Luke chapter 7 kind of cheerfulness where you're like, God, I am so overwhelmed by how much you love me. I'm absolutely giddy about it, and that's why I'm giving. Forgiven people are grateful people, and grateful people are generous people. I like the way the message translation of the Bible puts this verse. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your own mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. God loves it when the giver, that's you. God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. Now I realize, as I talk about this, some of you are just scratching your head because this sounds so foreign, right? This idea of cheerful giving when all you've ever known is reluctance and compulsion and guilt and duty. Not to mention maybe just trying to look like an upstanding citizen and someone who cares, right? You know, so at work, you've gone through the annual pledge drives where you feel like you don't have a choice to donate or the church used to go to where the leaders visited you to get you to commit to an annual amount that you would plan to give that year. I mean, we've all been through some pretty rough experiences when it comes to giving. But you need to know that whatever you've been through and however it's been bad it's been in the past, God has something different in mind when it comes to our giving. Something better in mind where the heart of giving starts by us reflecting 
and how gracious and generous the Lord has been with us. See, we've got to come all that man-made religion that's so buried deep within us, religion that says, I better give to God to be a good Christian. I better give to God to get on his good side. I better give to God so he won't be mad at me, right? But any kind of motivation like that has got it all wrong. That's a guilt mindset. That's not a grace mindset. And the gospel that we just celebrated in communion, the gospel that changes our lives, is pure grace. That's why Jesus says to us in Matthew 10, 8, freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received the grace, the love, the mercy, the forgiveness of our God. Freely, no strings attached. No additional work you have to pay, or for that matter, you could even pay. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Now, the love of God through the cross of Christ is 100% grace to us. Freely you have received. And by the way, like Adam talked about in communion, you do have to receive it. God will never force his grace on you, but he is always inviting you to receive it. That is the good news of Jesus Christ that he died for you and is inviting you to believe and to receive that grace. Because when you do receive it and you do experience, it begins to change you from the inside out. It drives out all that greed and worry that you have about money. And when all that happens, the only natural, normal, healthy response with those who have freely received from God is what? Is to freely give. Freely give back to him, back to to others. This is what grace-filled generosity is all about. And so whether it's our spending, our saving, our borrowing, or our giving, our attitude is so important, and it's an attitude that's got to be rooted in the grace of the gospel. And when our giving attitude is increasingly in alignment with where God wants us to be, then our giving actions will begin to fall in line. And so for the rest of our time together, I want to talk about giving to God and specifically giving to God here in the local church. Now, to get some perspective on where people are at with this whole concept of giving, I thought I'd share something I came across in preparation for this series. A couple years ago, some professors at the University of Notre Dame conducted a massive survey on what they called the science of generosity. The science of generosity. They wanted to study all aspects of giving, so not just money, but also time and volunteering, using your skills to help others, things like that. And they wanted to do so from a scientific and measurable perspective. So they went about amassing a large amount of data on giving to study causes and manifestations and consequences of generosity, including comparing those who are very generous with those who are not at all. So here's some of what they found. That one out of seven Americans gives away two or more percent of their income. One in seven people, right, gives two percent or more of their income away. Six of seven then, doing the math, give less than two percent of income. One in seven, that's right around 14 percent. And that number, by the way, is all charitable giving, not just religious giving. So you got one in seven giving away two or more percent of their income. The survey went on to say then that only three percent of us gives away 10% or more, right? Now, I share those numbers just to give you the landscape, right, of the state of giving in our country today. I don't do so shaking my head in disgust. I don't do so wagging my finger in guilt. That's just the way it is nationally and probably the same locally and maybe similar in this church as well. And you know what? I guess it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't. You know why? Because any motive for giving other than the one we just talked about, it's only going to take you so far. It is. And so you've got, you know, mellow, dramatic televangelists appealing with great urgency. You've got tear-jerking animal cruelty commercials. You know, they're going to touch your heart, but they're not going to change your heart. So you might give in the moment, but it's not going to stick. Actually, let me take that even further. Giving because you care about people, giving because you want to make a difference. Now, those are really good motives, but even then, they're not transformational motives. They're not like the forgiven woman in Luke chapter 7. They're not like the poor, worshipful widow in Mark chapter 12. Great generosity flows from a changed heart. And I share that because when you look in the Bible, 
When you see what it has to say about giving, it seems absolutely ludicrous if you don't have that context. It does. So passages in the Old Testament that talk about us giving a tithe or 10% of our income back to the Lord, or then the New Testament that seems to suggest a tithe isn't so much a ceiling of giving to stop at, but rather a guideline of generosity to surpass. If you leave grace out of the equation, then it just comes across as harsh and legalistic religion. That's not our deal here. It's not what the Bible says. We're about grace. We're about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're about freely you have received, freely give. So I have no problem standing up here and telling you what I've said from up front before, that when it comes to the amount you should give to the church, I think the Bible teaches that you should shoot for the tithe but not stop there. Shoot for 10%, but don't stop there. Now, the New Testament downplays specific percentages, right? Because it's more concerned about motive. But I think the tithe of the Old Testament gives us an idea of what we should be aiming at, of what generous giving looks like when it is practically expressed. So what does all this mean for you as a Christian, as someone who's part of this church? I mean, I'm not naive. I know the talk of these kinds of percentages of giving back to God might sound unrealistic and unreachable to many of you, and I'm fine with that because I share all this not to guilt you. It's never about guilt. But I do share this to give you a sense of what the Bible teaches on giving. And so if these concepts sound way up here and your financial reality is way down here, what should you do? Well, just like we've done every week in this series, I want to give you some homework, something practical for you to work on. Now, you might remember back in that first week for our spending message, the homework was this. Track your spending, all of it, right? You want to get control of your spending, first thing you should do is track your spending, all of it. And then for the saving message, it was begin to save for an emergency fund. Shoot for $1,000. And then last week with a message on borrowing, the homework was don't go deeper into foolish debt. That whatever your credit situation is, don't make it worse, right? So this week then, as we talk about giving, here is my assignment for you. Make a plan to give to God, then follow that plan, all right? Make a plan to give to God, then follow that plan. So I'm not going to talk percentages. I'm not going to talk about dollar amounts. I'm simply going to encourage each of you to make a plan to give something back to God, then put some things into place to make sure you follow that plan. What does Paul say? He says each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Right? It's what you have decided in your heart to give, but then do it. You know, as I say all this, I realize that there are some of you here, some of you who are still like, Ur, you know. I'm mad that he's even talking about this in church, right? It's money talk. You know, I get that, but you know what? <laughs> That's the way you feel this isn't for you, right? It's not for you. You get a pass, total pass. I mean, if, if you can't connect all that we've experienced today in this time of worship and communion, then I don't want you to give, right? undermines everything I've been saying today, really. But I also think, though, that there are a lot of you here who are just crushing it when it comes to giving. I mean, you not only know what I'm talking about, but you're already doing it. You're giving to God out of a grateful heart, and you're experiencing the joys and the blessings that come from that. You are giving generous amounts now that you never could have fathomed years ago, and yet you won't go back. Why? Because you have seen God faithfully provide for you in amazing ways, and you've learned that you can never outgive God, just as the Bible teaches. Now, I don't know specific names, right? But I know we've got people like that here in our church because of the generous giving we see, and generous giving not just at Christmas Eve, but all throughout the year. So I guess all among us, we've got some of you who are mad, a lot of you who are glad, but then there are a lot of you, right, who want to give something, but you've never gotten around to it, or maybe you've tried, but then you stopped and you try again, but it never quite sticks, right? I mean, your heart's in the right place. You've just never found something that works for you. That's why I'm giving you this assignment. Make a plan to give to God, then follow that plan, I got to admit, this homework isn't very original. I just stole it from, I just borrowed it from the Bible, right? Straight out of 2 Corinthians, each of you should decide what you decided in your heart to give, right? So this is between you and God and your finances. Pray about it. 
pick a number, dollar amount, percentage of your income, whatever it is, then stick with that number. It's that simple. Make a plan to give to God, then follow that plan. And so once you decide to give to God, once you come up with a plan, what are some things you can do to help stick with that plan? Well, a couple thoughts come to mind. Let me share these with you, and then we'll begin to wrap up. First, set aside your decided amount ahead of time, and then make it your first priority to give that to God, right? Set aside your decided amount ahead of time, then make it your first priority to give that back to God. The Bible talks about something called first fruits giving, meaning that your giving to the Lord should be the first money commitment you make out of your earnings, the very first thing. The idea is this, that God deserves our best, not our leftovers. So when we make giving to the Lord our priority, it keeps us from waiting to the end of the week, the end of the month, the end of the paycheck to see if we've got anything left over for God. Listen, we're always going to have struggles for money. We're always going to feel like there are too many obligations and not enough to go around. So in that sense, it's never going to seem like we can afford to give something back to God. But the reality is this, we can't afford not to give. That's why it needs to be a priority. And so after you decide the amount you want to give to the Lord, set it aside and make it a priority. And then find the giving method that works best for you to keep, help keep you consistent. Find the giving method that works best for you to help keep you consistent. So for some of you, it's going to be giving through church envelopes. You've got weekly envelopes. You write the check out in the morning or the night before and you bring it to church. For others of you, it might mean setting up your giving through our website, through my community. Great way to give because it helps ensure faithful, ongoing giving. It takes out the forgetting factor, right? That's actually the reason why we as a family have chosen to go that route. As a matter of fact, online giving now makes up just over a third of all the giving we receive here at Hopeville. And then there's also the opportunity to give through our mobile app as well. A lot of choices. One's not better than the other. Whatever you choose, find the one that works best for you to help keep you consistent. When we talk about giving at Hopeville, let me just say this as well. You know, as a church, we really strive to maintain the highest of standards when it comes to our financial integrity. We are a registered 501c3 nonprofit organization. We undergo annual financial audits conducted by an outside certified public accountant, and we keep your giving confidential, where it's only known by our finance department. I don't know what you give. Pastor Adam doesn't know what you give. Pastor Matt, the elders, or anyone else. See, my point is, not only do we want to say your giving is between you and the Lord, but we also want to do, want to do what it takes to make sure that's true, right? I'm just thankful for all of you, you know, who give to the Lord here at Hope Bell. And while it is ultimately between you and God, I want you to know that it makes a difference. It makes a kingdom difference in this church, in our community, and around the world. And that's exciting to see. And so we've talked today about our giving attitudes. We've also talked about our giving actions. And my hope for all of us is that we can make this cycle of our attitudes and actions work for us. Why? So we can grow as generous Christians. Generous Christians. See, not only should we as Christians be the most grateful people on this planet, we should also be the most generous ones. Forgiven much, loves much, with a love that is expressed in our actions, including the way we give to God and the way we share with others. Earlier, I shared some of the findings from the Science of Generosity study, and as I close, I want to leave you with one other thought that I found very interesting, that in comparing this 3% who gave away 10% or more of their income with the 86% who gave away less than two of their income, the researchers came to this conclusion. Listen to this. We find a strong and highly consistent association between generous practices and various measures of personal well-being like happiness and health, a sense of purpose in life, personal growth, a strong and highly consistent connection between the two. They go on, generosity often triggers neurochemical systems that increase pleasure and reduce stress. It also has the capability of reducing the self-absorption that many ungenerous Americans experience. By giving away some of our resources for the well-being of others, we can enhance our own. Personal well-being, happiness, health, growth, a sense of purpose in life, that's what the science of generosity tells us. But you know what? It really shouldn't surprise us. 
It shouldn't because Jesus himself knew that very same thing 2,000 years earlier when he simply said this. It is more blessed to give than receive. It is more blessed to give than receive. A generous life is a blessed life. And so as children of grace, let us be the kind of church, right? The kind of church that lives generously for the glory of God, for the good of others, and for our own personal joy in the Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you for a morning of worship. Thank you for taking us to the cross. Thank you for opening our eyes and helping us see Jesus anew and afresh. We have been forgiven much. So let us, like that woman in the story, love much. Right? And may our love take on all kinds of expressions, including our giving. God, with every person here, we've got a multitude of situations, right? No two people are alike. No two bank accounts are alike. But wherever we are, Lord, it's ultimately between us and you. And so, God, we want to honor you with our lives. Help us to make a plan to give to you and to follow that plan. But even more beyond that, fill our hearts with everlasting gratitude so that we may be the generous kind of people with all that we have. Lord, for your glory, for the good of others, and for our own personal joy. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. We want to respond to our God and King, giving him the glory forever and ever.
Someone had some coffee this morning. Awesome! What a great way to wrap up our day of worship and really the whole series. It has been a great journey together, not only on Sundays. We had the financial conference a couple weekends ago, and we had our Financial Peace University classes kick off last week as well. And our heart just for you is that you would invite God into every area of your life. Now, next week, we begin a new series it's called Love Your Neighbor. Uh, Pastor Adam's going to kick things off, walk us through a very familiar uh, story that Jesus tells us about what it means to care for those that God brings across our path. That's next Sunday, but as you go from here, may our God fill your heart with hope, hope that is anchored in the name of Jesus. God bless you.